Welcome to episode six of Poetry Worth Hearing, hosted by me, Kathleen McPhillamy, and with music by Alex Heen. This episode begins with an interview with Giles Goodland, poet, teacher and lexicographer, who describes ways poetry can expand beyond the conventional poetic register. The episode ends with an extract from a reading by the Scottish poet Bill Herbert, who goes well beyond the conventional poetic register in his explorations of English and Scots. And in between, we have a range of poems, each of which, in some way, is an experiment. As always, you can find texts of poems, information about the poets, and plenty more on the website. Episode 6 on poetryworthhearing.biz Giles Goodland is a distinguished poet and teacher of poetry in Oxford University's Continuing Education Department. He talks here about poetry which has influenced him, mostly in the modernist and postmodern tradition. He is particularly drawn to poets who transcend poetic conventions, opening their poetry up to the whole of discourse, through techniques such as collage or a variety of diction. His tastes are formed in part by his own biography, in part perhaps by the lexicographer's fondness for scrapbookers, from Coleridge to Christopher Logue. I moved to Oxford in about 1991, having studied English at uh, University of Wales, and I decided to write my thesis on modernist poetry in the 1940s in uh, in wartime in Britain. And the backstory for that is that I'd known a bit about my father who died when I was quite young, and I'd known that he had some peripheral involvement with poetry. He'd gone to Cambridge in uh, 1938 with his friend uh, Nicholas Moore, and they'd set up in their first year a magazine called Seven. And he seems to have devoted most of his time to editing this magazine rather than studying. Seven became quite an important magazine in some ways. It it imported a lot of American poetry like uh, Wallace Stevens, Henry Miller, as well as the group that Henry Miller was involved with in in Paris called the Villa Surat Group. And clustering around Seven magazine, a group of writers who were influenced by Dylan Thomas, including Jeff Hendry and others. And they actually became closely involved with Seven themselves. And and through Seven, they started uh, meeting in Leeds and they decided to form a movement that they called the Apocalyptic Movement. My father, who was not a writer and never seemed to have been interested in writing himself, was there at this first meeting and he seems to have typed up their, their manifesto, the Apocalyptic Manifesto, which they had wanted to get signed by various august writers such as Yeats, who was still just alive, and Dylan Thomas, but they couldn't really get, uh, you know, important signatures on their manifesto. But they went ahead anyway, as the 40s progressed, and published three books of poetry. And it it, it was quite an influential movement, this whole sort of neo-romantic mood of poetry throughout the 40s was very much influenced by the apocalyptics. But my father dropped out by late 1939, he had, uh, you know, his own concerns, as everyone else did, of course. Doing my, my thesis in Oxford became a sort of way to investigate this milieu. 
So my thesis covered HD's trilogy and four quartets and Dylan Thomas, as well as the apocalyptics. But having written the thesis, I, I, I became convinced that I didn't really want an academic career. I was interested in the ideas and I was interested in the creative processes, but I wasn't very interested in, in writing academic books or articles. I was particularly involved with the life of HD, her life in London and also her brief analysis with Freud. So instead of continuing to write academically, I, I started to write plays. And uh, my first play was about HD, which was performed in the uh, Burton Taylor Theatre in Oxford in the 90s. After I finished my thesis, I was working for the OED. I was writing plays and I became interested in language. And I was particularly interested in, in the way that language has so many different registers and different ways of expressing itself, only one of which is poetry and how when we write poetry, we tend to write in a recognisable register, which we know this is the poetic register, you know, whether a poem is lineated or not. I want to read a poem from 1935 by uh, Humphrey Jennings. Humphrey Jennings was one of the writers I, I examined briefly in my thesis, and I still really enjoy the way he uses language that he collages from various sources to make a poem. He was influenced by the Surrealists, but I think the kind of poetry he wrote can't be dismissed as simply Surrealist poetry. It does something more. So here's a, a short poem. It's the first of what he calls three reports. The conditions for this race, the most important of the classic races, for three-year-old fillies were ideal, for the weather was fine and cool. About one o'clock, the aurora again appeared over the hills in a south direction, presenting a brilliant mass of light. Once again, Captain Allison made a perfect start, for the field was sent away well for the first time that they approached the tapes. It was always evident that the most attenuated light of the aurora sensibly dimmed the stars like a thin veil drawn over them. We frequently listened for any sound proceeding from this phenomenon, but never heard any. So that's it. That's a poem, but it's doing something that poems had not usually done up to then. It seems to be going beyond what was thought possible by using different techniques, by, by using collage. He seems to be splicing in bits of a, a racing report from a newspaper with an account of the aurora and possibly some other things that he's put in there to make his own texts. He was well known for his editing in film, his use of montage and different ways of cutting for effect. And, and it's exactly what he's doing in the poem. He's using what you might call in film, you might call it found footage, as well as film that he shot himself and splicing it together and making something new. What I was interested in was not so much um, collaging from other poetic sources, but from uh, collaging from the whole of discourse. It was my job as well. So it was a combination of things that I became interested in using these sources. Each OED entry for any sense has a paragraph of quotations after it to illustrate the sense. Essentially, my, my job 
sorting files was to uh, look for more of these. But I began finding that if you look through endless quotations, some of them just work together well as poems. Another writer that I, I might mention is Christopher Logue, who wrote War Music. He, he doesn't call them translations. He calls them accounts of Homer. He kept a vast collection of scrapbooks, and he would put into the scrapbooks anything he found that was of interest, you know, newspaper articles, things he'd overheard, cosmetics, advertisements, any text that he was interested in, he would put into this scrapbook. He would use these scraps as sources for war music. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, people maybe remember Christopher Logue as well, his column in, in Private Eye, where he would just put weird news stories that he'd found in newspapers there. And that's the connection because he was a, an obsessive scrapbooker. In terms of translating the Iliad, it, it's the serious attempt to reframe the Iliad as something that really works for the modern reader in its use, deliberate use of anachronism, its use of contemporary language, of really shocking dislocations and imagery. Whereas normal translations of Homer, because they keep to the text, they're keeping to a, a world that is just doesn't have models for the modern brain. He'll sort of introduce things that connect the shocking killing of the Iliad with, with contemporary violence in, in a way that really makes it a much stronger poem than a straight, if you like, uh, translation. We're talking about, I guess, other poets who use collage. But I think there's also diction, the kind of decisions poets make about the language in a poem. And I've always found this interesting, the different diction that poets have, the different ways they have of building a sentence, if you like, of using both the techniques of poetry but also other kinds of, of technique that you wouldn't normally see as literary, the, the way they use syntactical techniques, you know, whether to use left branching or right branching clauses, using the passive or, or the active and things like that. I find just the use of, of diction in different poets an interesting way to study them. And it's a way of getting out of the, the normal range of poetic techniques, you know, rhyme, and meter and uh, stanzas and things like that. So it's more looking at poems, what they're doing with their sentences, what they're doing with the kind of language they're confronting us with in their poems, which maybe brings us back to the apocalyptics, because the, the diction of the apocalyptics is often very in-your-face, like really extreme so I've been looking, reading this anthology as well. It came out earlier this year. It's called Apocalypse. It's not actually restricted to the apocalyptic movement. It turns out to be a much wider anthology. I'd like to read out J.F. Henry's poem, Picasso for Guernica. This poem was often picked out by movement poets in the 50s as an example of bad poetry, what the you know writers like uh, Ian Hamilton were and others were, were sort of turning against. This is to neglect the fact that poets like Henry were really in the modernist mode. And this one tells it because if you think of Picasso's painting for Guernica, you have this very forceful, very violent imagery on the canvas. 
to say something important about violence in war. So here is um, Hendry's poem, Picasso for Guernica. Frozen in the fright of light, chilled skull and spine, drip, bone shriek splinters sharper than the bren, starve Franco stroke and stave the hooves of bulls. I am the arm thrust candle through the wall. Up cities crack fire laughter, the furious minutes and bark a ruin at man in his sea loneliness, hair rearing fin rays. I am the spinning coil distilled eyes iron. Nay, horse, terror through steel teeth and a thicket of bricks, beam an eye bomb, cellar and stride nerve, peeled pupils enamel, rhomboid head. I am the tiled blind hand plunged bulb in socket. Splint for the shriven shin, I foster mantrum out of festered history. Sprout pointed fingers where an afterbirth is dung and rubble teat. I am the eyeball-blown world, axis of anger. People like Donald Davey and Larkin read Hardy with interest and admiration. But there's an aspect of Hardy that they didn't quite seem to to grasp, and that is the slightly mad side of Hardy. If you look at the dynasts, it's such a strange, ridiculous, almost project, this completely unperformable play consisting of hundreds and hundreds of mini scenes about the Napoleonic Wars, where he has literally hundreds of characters walking on and a lot of it is performed in dumb show but it's a kind of dumb show that could never be performed i mean you have to think he was anticipating the cinema he's he's using the conventions of a play to write what seems like a a sort of modernist epic before modernism i, I love hardy's poetry generally but there's something about the dynasts which is just because of its extremeness its mixture of different voices is is extraordinary. I'm not sure if it's readable, though. George Barker. I find the very early George Barker is kind of amazing. He he became a little bit too much of a parody of himself, but his first book from Faber is really good. I'll read this one called The Constellation from George Barker's first book. I'd say the first line contains the word wandering twice but with different spellings. So the first wandering is with an O, and the second wandering is is with an A. Wandering one, wandering on, one among wildest stars, gone forever from beneath the feet, bereft from your always wandering, all is left. One among the wild stars, wildest. We search and have searched the sky's category, you move among not. We cannot see among the bright and brightest is too bright to see. Wandering one, too wonderful. No wandering of one's wandering when watching your wandering, only shown in the refulgence thrown on satellites. Unseen illuminator passing over a smooth stone. Once again, Wanderer, wend among the distressed stars, 
and with your wand, like the wind disorder them where they lie categorically upon the sky. Very playful, very, very unusual. It's like he, he was coming to a similar style to Dylan Thomas. It's like they were both in parallel, unconstrained, not sort of seeing the poem as something too gem-like or precious. It's more like outward exploding, even though the poems are quite short. They're not the, the sort of crystalline poetry that, you know, say the imagists or the early English language modernists had wanted. It was something else from that. So very different from the Eliot and Pound school. So American poetry, I, I find um, extremely interesting, probably more interesting than poetry this side of the of the pond, but they both have their virtues. So I was going, I was put on my list Wallace Stevens, but I think Wallace Stevens is just too well known to to read. I mean, I, I love Wallace Stevens and I continuously go back to Stevens because um, his poems are just so interpretable in different ways. And you always find something different when you reread a Wallace Stevens poem. Instead, I'll read William Bronk, another poet I like a lot, a poet with a kind of um, interest in philosophy. I guess that, that ties him in with Stevens. So this is a short one from Death is the Place, the Unified Force. The force from fathers that sons fight against, or for, is one force and the sun's force. All the energy of the universe is allied and breaks alliance to fight itself and wanders, watches, serene with hurt. They're, they're quite short, most of Bronx poems. You would say that they're aphoristic, but they don't have the completion that aphorisms suggest. I was trying to find earlier a particular poem by Vani Capildeo, because it's one that she wrote when she was working for the Oxford English Dictionary called The Lightwell. And I've searched her books and I don't seem to have the book in which it was published. So I'll, I'll have to read a different poem instead. So I'll read a poem that she titles Sleeplessness Six from her book uh, Undraining Sea. Who's been drinking quicksand? Our insatiable clock has. The breeze blocks barred nothing. Stripes are getting past the pillars. Want a drink of water to take the edge off. Tilting round thoughts, one shadow head flattens. Nighttime has cool guests. Footsteps, pause, silence. So walk the corridors. The house has gone zebra. Cheese and bread lady, her times after lights out, lines like instant coffee rule her rough thumb. A drink of boiled water, a tumbler with ice cubes and a straw. Two steps down the evaporated reception room. Could falling stain the terrazzo now, full of fronds and moon? It should slip down like emulsion. The kitchen is newly scumbled. One lights on somewhere further. The switch sits fingernail cool. Are you the same kind as the creature? The light globes in the living room. 
short in the indoor nighttime, walk hugging the floor. Eyes take yellow notice. Tiger mother, seen in her natural surroundings, aloneness. She rips out a book, she feeds. We are of the same kind, you and I. I think it's her use of addiction, her use of jumps that makes that, that creates a kind of resistance. There's something in in a in a lot of contemporary poetry, which is in the modernist tradition, which uses the resistance that a reader has to understanding a poem as a kind of method in itself. So you have to think: Is the poem cogent? Am I meant to be making a total sense of the poem, or am I receiving a group of sentences and impressions which simply arrange their own sense around themselves? I think in many of her poems, that's what she's doing. She's she's arranging the world by arranging sentences, and it's for us to come in and see if we can sort of join in to this arrangement. And sometimes, sometimes it, it it's difficult, or sometimes we don't really get everything that she's doing, but a poem about sleeplessness, I think, for anyone who sort of um, suffers from that, will recognise there about uncontrollable thoughts, about observations that come in unbidden, and about maybe the sort of excess of listening and thinking that happens during sleeplessness. This is from Jeremy Hilton, who for many years edited a poetry magazine called Fire. And recently he's published a book called Fulmer's Wing, which is out from Knives, Forks and Spoons Press quite recently, which I recommend highly. He writes a lot about birds. So I want to read a poem called The Cormorants. Withstanding weather within, walls of the inland house, the bright sky, Middays beyond, fox limping through sleet, and cormorants flying over this deep hinterland, winter. Every day we see the mute messengers larger than the crows and much more graceful. Ice schooners, brine bringers, sailboats of sky passages, requiem wreckers, high sky flyers above the serious geese. Harbingers of white ground, black waters, frozen wrath circling to land like plains. I imagine that when I'm drawing near to death, they'll be nesting here in inland places, on islands, in lakes, like swans, or black-headed gulls in trees by the fast deep rivers like herons or in cracks on the concrete edges of reservoirs. So they come and will come 15 or more each day, the dark sky schooners in twos or threes, above the house black freighters of hope and mercy across the soul's deepest gloom, across a medium low sun that trails Venus in its fast descent carrying over the snow territories, the wilderness of cold, the colder tang of ocean, invaders of the rising seas. 
You can find details of the writers and books Giles referred to in poetryworthhearing.biz, as well, of course, as more information about Giles and his own publications. Sarah J. Bryson is working on a sequence of poems about her life in nursing. I think her approach is interesting in that she seems to be combining poetry with life writing, a genre which has recently become very popular. Blue lighted. That swing from boredom, restocking the cubicles, damp dusting the shelves, to fall on life and death, victims of a road traffic accident perhaps, seems impossible to manage. This time it's a man in his nineties, head bleeding from a fall, frail, and not talking at all, who, in front of your eyes, changes. Someone shouts, arrest, and they bleep the team. Start resuscitation, one pummeling his chest, another squeezing an ambibag, green line to oxygen. The team arrives. Suddenly, it's your turn. You know you need at least two inches of sternal compression for the full effect, so that's what you do, and under your hands, you feel the crunch of bones, ribs snapping. Keep going, the doctor says, and you do. Keep going, keep going, keep going, until you are told to stop. And afterwards, when the recess is over, there's a staff nurse in tears, asking loudly, is this right? Is this what he or his relatives would have wanted? Then the shock of it overrides you with the shakes. No one notices, except another student, a small third year. She walks over, has to reach up to put her arms around you. It's all right, she says. You did your best. That's all any of us can do. She leads you to a chair and sits you down, crouches next to you, still holding your hand, and waits, talking gently until the shakes subside. Evidence-based practice one. We were warned before going out onto the wards about archaic treatments, those ways passed down through generations and old-style matrons, just because that's the way we've always done it. The senior tutor impressed upon us the mantra of evidence-based practice. We must never consider that a potential pressure point could be massaged with meths to toughen the skin, or that a sawbow ring would be wise for a patient to sit upon, or that a bed sore could benefit from egg white and oxygen. Oh no, there are better ways of doing things, she said. You are the new faces of nursing, the next generation, and it's up to you to question, 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 challenge all those outdated ways. She scanned our eager-to-please smiles. Nearly 60 of us, mainly girls of 18 or so, all brought up to defer to our elders, all taught to do as we were told. She tilted her head as if to bestow this responsibility onto her protégés. I am somehow reminded of Miss Jean Brodie. What three years in nurse training taught me. I learned how to stay awake all night after a party and all the way through to May morning to hear the choir boys sing. How to work after only three hours sleep, and how to sleep in until past lunchtime, 
or how to sleep the whole day with earplugs. How to comfort someone in tears after their emotional, unceremonious breakup with the latest demigod. How to dodge the traffic, biking through the city, taking the back lanes, cycling under the Bridge of Sighs. How to cycle up Headington Hill or Southfield Road or Jack Straws Lane without ever getting off. How to knit at night, how to pick up other people's stitches, how to put it down in the middle of a row if needs be. How to make a meal out of whatever's in, a tuna fish thing or a pita bread stuffed with peanut butter and grated apple. How to keep tally of telephone calls, the, the gas and electricity, how to divvy up the bills, how to share everything, how to starch and stitch those linen hats to be the best at making seven even folds. Trisha Broomfield is also writing autobiographically. She is a poet who has written mostly for radio and the stage, so her poems have strength in performance, but also hold their own on the page. Bowling Green You take my hand I skip and chatter You smile and nod We skirt the corner shop Dandelion and burdock Brown sacks of soil-brushed spuds Looking twice We cross the concrete road We pass allotments Where men with rolled-up sleeves Aim silver spades at well-worked earth Dig huge cabbages and grin Hey, Jimmy, they all cry. Smiling with the sunshine, you reply. We reach the bowling green, where Ernest, Wilf and Eddie bend and stretch. This is my granddaughter, you say. They beam hello. Then Ernest rolls the jack, and all attention fixes on its track. I swing my legs on the slatted bench. Socks slither to my shoes. You shade your eyes, aim weighted woods which no one else may touch, while the close clipped grass greenly anticipates a game to remember. Chenille The tablecloth, scarlet, chenille, bought in your absence from a shepherd's bush stall, now hangs askance. Your mother's clock, stolidly squat, dead centre, a reluctant mediator, watching our chairs face off. We have nothing left to say, though say things. The hollow voice of the clock, timing our silences, its hands thrown out in despair, stuck at ten to two. We have nothing left to do. My fingers find the fringe, twisting, unravelling, Yours upend your empty glass. A solitary tear of Val Policella celebrates alone, soaking into scarlet, and the cat has her kittens under the table. Inga Melful, in these two reflective poems, experiments with layers of meaning and metaphor. 
looking through, looking in. Where the monks grew apples for Abingdon, apple pie for the abbot, a succession of orchards. Still today the apple and the pear, the peach and the fig. In the stone of the wall around the garden is a window, looking out on the road, looking in among the trees. In the orchard grows a tree, an apple tree you can see through, a hollow lower trunk with a window in it, its graceful frame arced by living wood and bark. You can see into its heart and through, light patches of moss moist in the grass at your feet, in your ears only the noise of birds, a bleat farther off, a gap opening up into meaning in its unexpectedness. A window into the world, maybe beyond. Like Julian of Norwich in her anchorage, where she could gaze one way straight into the love of Christ, and the other with mercy and understanding on the vanities of Marjorie Kemp as if her two windows were only one. Quilt Don't you wish you could cut out frayed or fraying bits and stitch it all together again? Upcycling Expertly blocked and patched, you could be stronger warmer, more colourful, reassembled, perhaps same but different, so that looking back, work completed for now, you might spot in the reshuffling something that was always there but less clear or something unguessed, revealed as one new patch shifts the meaning of the rest. No longer the same tired message, but then to do it all again. Record, pieced together, no story is stable, continually retold by the needle, moving on as scraps stack up, black, purple, polka dot, the sewer sits. No rejects. If you have the right backing, you can sew in almost anything. Put it straight in. You will be surprised how it matches. Hannah Bush Nielsen has experimented with form and language throughout her poetic career. I'm going to begin with a poem from a sequence called Lizard, Lizard's Love Song, 
one. Each of my perfectly patterned parts would fall for you and rather be left behind to love you limb by limb. Yet my cold-blooded heart cannot race or leap for the desert's freezing night forces me asleep. Two. But in dreams, I scamper, I run, even dance. The sun whips me on in her frenzy across burning stone. My panther builds dumb skulls searching, searching you out, ecstatic and quick, flickering quick, till shipwrecked, trapped in split vision. I weep till I know what I have lost. I dream that I too can cut a lock of hair and dissolve in the winds. Three. Woken by the cold smile of night, I calm, diminish, as if I were dying, the heart turns as quiet as a click. The second poem is from a sequence, much more recent one, called um, Between the Leaves. It's set in a physic garden. One. Astrological herb bed. Not that I believe in horoscopes. They scare me, but these plants classified astrological claim a cure I can't resist for the knots of kernels in my flesh, the moist fever. How to believe these rosettes of succulent leaves. One touch can draw you under the dominion of the moon, drag shadow into light. How to stretch out my hand and not be wrong. Quiet, inside, quiet, under the old tree. I stoop to observe this not-yet-flower, its very first shape, sweet. Yes, sweet, unfinished, but stone-crop in every detail. My finger prods this almost bud, its invisible clock ticking. Quiet, inside, quiet. They say stones cannot shrink. They're wrong. Every night the moon shrank with bystander's shame. Sarah James is an adventurous explorer of form. I think you'll be intrigued by the difference between the poems as you hear them and as they appear on the page. How to become your own worst friend. Try to reverse time as if to tweak your genes, to wipe out the diabetes. Footnote two. Unblunt the parts. Footnote four. You'll sharpen. Footnote one. To arrows against your heart. The mind you'll use to break anything happy. Footnote 10. Start at the beginning when you aren't even a dream. Footnote 14. In your parents' lives. See? Footnote 7. Already there are eggshell cracks. Footnote 9. In the family you're spilled through. Pain that can't be undone. Note how. Footnote 13. You accumulate. Footnote 3. Bad shit. Tell your brain it isn't a fate. Footnote 6. You could escape. Let yourself say, I'm good enough. It's not my fault. 
pretend to believe. Footnote 11. This. The past can't be mended. The past is not yet you. Footnote 12. Stubbornly broken and grabbing for explanations. Footnote 5. That might make sense of the unfairness. Though, of course, you'll find none. Footnote 8. Footnote 1. Attack yourself as the body. Footnote 2. Over attacks its own cells. Footnote 3. Substitute your list. Footnote 4. Of personal design flaws. Footnote 5. Footnote well. Footnote 6. Caveat life to death. Footnote 7. Watch closely those. Footnote 8. Who don't like something. Someone. Footnote 9. When all else fails, call it. Footnote 10. Names. Pull it apart. Footnote 11. Piece together instead. Footnote 12. A voodoo doll. Prickly with pins. Footnote 13. This isn't the best way. Footnote 14. To make a person, life, world. But. Diagnosis. Admitted November the 30th, 1981. Diabetes mellitus. Part 1. The only colour is Dad's Ford Cortina, his bright maroon pride and joy. I'm six and I'm lying on the back seat. Or maybe I'm sitting, but the reason I only catch snatches of blurred light is because I'm too small to see properly out of the window. Mum is holding my hand. I don't remember much else, except that I am ill, and the hospitals should make me better. I know there is snow, though, because it's winter, and there's always snow. Because my world suddenly feels as frozen as the garden when the grass and flowers are smothered by white, layering to a thick blanket as bleached as my nan's bedsheets. Because my nursery school teacher brings me a snow globe. It's an unusual present, strange in its unexpectedness, and the fact that I'm now two years into big school. I shake it, admiring how this white glistens. Even upside down, it's a glittering dreamscape. For weeks afterwards, everything blizzards. D. I. A. B. E. T. E. S. I can't yet string together the letters and sounds of this oddness. I will come to understand it as a list of sweet things I should never eat. I will learn to measure better in glass syringes, injecting oranges and then my leg. I will will my skin numb. Still the needles wait, its sharp jab, 
that sting pushing the plunger, forcing cold insulin into my body. All this filters through slowly. That afternoon, I can't yet see what's so wrong with me. I say goodbye and watch through the ward's window as mum and dad leave. That evening, nurses let some of the kids play hide and seek. They laugh and whisper and run. I don't join in. Later, I sneak back to the large window. Dad's Cortina was a livid bruise in the car park. But, since it's gone, I wish it back. The hospital's white walls close around me. We can hear some links between that poem and Sarah J. Bryson's poems about nursing. We have double value from our final contributor, Bill Herbert. In the first part of this extract from his Zoom reading in April, he read from The Kindly Interrogator, his translation of poems by the Iranian poet Alireza Abiz. In the second, he gave us poems from his own most recent collection, The Wreck of the Fathership. The first part is is from this latest book, The, the Kindly Interrogator, uh, published by Shearsman uh, last year now, uh, and that is a book of translations from the Persian of Alireza Abiz, a wonderful poet who I worked with in doctoral study. Um, he's done a fantastic book on, on censorship in, in Iran and indeed the, the, the theory of censorship, but he's also prolific and um, very well-respected um, modern Iranian poet. And uh, I'm just going to read pretty much straight from him, for, uh, but I will say two things. One about the method, which was that we co-translated everything, which means that he would come in with a literal, a quite rough literal, and um, he would read me the Persian, very beautiful language to just sort of sit and try and uh, get to grips with. And then we would work together trying to get the, the very peculiar, very distinctive music of his work. And the second thing I'd say is about that music. As a, as a man who's written a book on censorship, might uh, you might think uh, he he uh, fell foul of the regime at several points, and his work has a kind of strange controlled surface. And underneath that controlled surface, you fear uh, terrible things are happening. And every now and then, you kind of catch a glimpse of this the the terrible things because something is not quite right in the world as it's being presented to you. So there's this very level tone that we had to hit all the time, but then there's this kind of slightly um, uncanny or unheimlich, uh, unnatural um, other thing happening. So the first poem is called My ID Card, and I think this one demonstrates this because the more you think about the poem, the less sense it makes, but it never, it never alludes to the fact it's, it's not making sense. The agent asked me for an ID card and none of my cards had a photo. So I had to talk to the woman passing outside in the street. The woman fell down and was transformed into a blade of grass. Terrified, I returned. The agent still had my card, photoless in his hand. We went out into the street. The woman was passing, her handbag over her shoulder. I called out to her, she turned, and in the form of a lifeless dove, descended 
onto my ID card. This next one is just called The Informer. I too was invited to the ceremony for selecting the finest informer. I wore my best shirt, my shiny black shoes, and my Italian suit. I put on a tie and I used cologne. Inside the hall, the presenter was on the podium. All the candidates were left outside. All the seats had already been taken by the officers responsible for informing on the ceremony. This poem's called The Writer's Study. And uh, again, if you noticed kind of the, the kind of dissociative thing happening where the person is both present and not present, that this poem kind of uh, is about that thing, um, the writer's study. The writer's study is dim in the light of dawn. The curtains are closed. He should have opened them. He hasn't. If I were the writer, I would have thrown open the curtains, unlatched the window, invited the light into the room. I am not the writer, only the scribbler of these lines. Out of extreme idiocy, I have drawn the curtains on this beautiful morning. I am sitting in the kitchen, staring at a can of salt on the table. This is the title poem, A Kindly Interrogator. This contained a, a complete impossibility in terms of translating, uh, which was that the, the interrogator, who is so polite, has a, a giveaway, uh, which is the beard. I mean, he's obliged of a beard because uh, he's a, a proper religiously pure. But in order not to give away that he might be fundamentalist in his views, uh, he has his beard very neatly done, um, very neatly trimmed. And of course, this is the biggest giveaway of all. So in that society where beards are not good, not, not usual, not, 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 not normal, um, moustaches are very popular, uh, but beards not, it is, a, it is an absolute giveaway when someone has a very neat, trim little beard that they might be coming from a place that you should not trust. But of course, you can't translate this detail. It's just, it's just not possible to actually convey this except by trying to do something with the tone of the piece as a whole. You know, you slap a, you can slap a footnote on it, but that's about all you can do. So the kindly interrogator. I have a kindly interrogator. He's interested in philosophy and free verse. He admires Churchill and drinks green tea. He is delicate and bespectacled. He is lightly bearded and has a woman's voice. He is polite and doesn't insult me. He has never beaten me up. He has never demanded false confessions. He says, only write the truth. I say, on my life. So now I'll move on to my latest collection, which was called The Wreck of the Fathership. The title uh, refers to the, to the death of my father. So it's, a, it's an elegiac book. Um, it, it also refers to the kind of the, the great wreck of patriarchy, which we are experiencing at the moment, uh, which is, uh, seems to be uh, determined to destroy 
uh, everything uh, that we, we hold most dear in the world. Uh, I'd like to start with a poem about masks called Byron's Mask. I think a lot of the, the, the book is, is oddly prefigurative of things which, which it, it did not dream of when it was being written. It's also a book that's very interested in persona and uh, the, 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 different, the different masks we wear, particularly gentlemen. Byron's Mask, I don't know if you know this, in the, in, it's in the Keats House in Rome. And it's, uh, it's the mask he used to wear at the, the carnival in, in Venice. And, you know, the carnival masks are all versions of, of distorted faces, uh, uh, you know, animal masks and so forth. Uh, except for Byron's mask, of course, which is simply um, a human face and hair. And uh, it bears a very strong resemblance uh, to Byron. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a, one of those things that only the greatest egoist, etc., might might have done is, is to have a mask exactly the same as him. And so this, this uh, poem uh, came from that idea and also from the great gesture, which we all know from episodes of Mission Impossible in our childhood, where, or indeed Scooby-Doo, where the mask is pulled off the head like this to reveal the, the, the true, the true uh, whoever, the true whoever. So this uh, is uh, Byron's mask. Byron's mask for the Venetian Carnivale looked very like the face and hair of Byron, as though he had a Lord Byron's head-shaped onion for a head and could simply pull skin after skin off, each revealing a slightly smaller Lord Byron's head, until the final tiny head, still with Byron's features, perfectly picked out like a Patrushka Giovanni Don doll. And when this last shallot of Lordy Gordon was shed, as though he would walk around with no head at all. In fact, it was in this manner that he wrote all his best poems. The fathership, the fathership is sinking fast Though only into its ain past, while engineers regard thee loo, its captain cries, Abandon crew! You never metamorphosis as rigidly applied as this. Destroyer, whaler, clipper, bark, galleon, galley, argo, ark, the feather ship, the feather ship, full fathom fifty, on it slips. Still at the helm, though it pints rech dune, humming resurgum and old farrant tune, o'er cap kens merchants that nae langer breathe, Atlantean offshore accounts a seethe, to trade in whale sushi, last seepins o' isle, for merlins o' plastic and nuclear spile, the feather ship, the feather ship, the Mariana Trench for your rubbish tip. First fill up the seas, send tack to the skies. Set sail for Mars, non billionaire's prize. For as it sinks, its rats will rise, swelling on fructish of fascist lies, clinging to spars of colonial cane and spearing. Why, why can't we do it again? Behold their fleet, sons hope or supite, a flotsam was sin that soppin' we spite, a rotic arundel camutha the rammy, gorging on guts they unfold like gold lammy. The feather ship, the feather ship, aim at the lifeboats, let grape shot rip. Holes hallowed with grease and hooling with greed, 
The seas are a heaven where hell jays feed, where sharks he a hooli, but why would you save among Suravuliks when here's the ninth wave? Here comes the one to sweep Athenawa, Mac Jesus and Mary and Jetsam of our. The feather ship, the feather ship, he hung up his son, Sigidum the slip. Eloi, Eloi, Lamasa Bachthani, kick out the jammy pieces, mammy. The feather ship, you had to query, was I designed as Tapsaltiri, his parent company, Poseidon, is a shell for the shells of the upside dune. Our surplus cargo drifts ashore to ensure the poor he scotch galore, while our herniating honko voices shall brook your nisi foo o noises. The feather ship, the feather ship, who shall we whacken for this bad trip? The feather ship, the feather ship, wha shall loosen its old man's grip? Tee thrapples, lapels, tee reins, tee guns. He'll never let gate of the west is unwon. Saturn merely swallowed his wains. Droon daddle grow gills to had on to his gains. The feather ship, the feather ship. Wha shall loosen its deed man's grip? Old man of the sea, youth scorpion ride. He'll no let gay till the earth has died. I have another two pieces and then we will be done. First is quite brief piece. It's an elegy for my father. It was, it's about that moment uh, when you have, you know, if, you, if you can get there, um, where you have to be there by the side of the person as they go. And of course, it was a terrible moment. And then suddenly uh, when the pandemic arrived, I realized how, what an extraordinary privilege it was. What, what, a, what, a, what a, a, a marvelous moment it was to be able to have when so many were being uh, denied it. And so uh, the poem took on a kind of another charged meaning for me at that point. My father was in the Merchant Navy in his first part of his, of his life. And so there, there is a kind of a, a bit of a reference to, to that. My father's hand was larger of palm than mine and shorter fingered and the hairs on its back were blonde amid the grizzling of veins, as though it had previously been the claw of a bear, but instead it had handled the watchmaker's fine devices and worked in the ship's bowels with hot gauges, as though he must calibrate the earth's turning from its core or adjust it in an orrery till all ran well. So when he was dead, and I'd never hold it again, I wanted to photograph my father's hand, that capable creature, as it lay dead upon the sheet, its heft, its knocks, its tendons, that still held his intelligence, its tenderness and force but it had already taken on the gravity of the depths, as though glimpsed in the wreck of a sunken vessel and would not submit to record, as though to return with this report would set the blood to bubbling in my veins. 
I'll finish off with a po another a, a poem again about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. This is a poem called The Nine Trades. Uh, the Nine Trades, in fact, welcome you to the city of refuge. It's written um, around about the time of the disasters in Syria, but is, I, I think you will agree applies just as well to the current disasters. And uh, again, it, it applies very specifically to the kind of full welcome that the West appears to be offering, uh, particularly our nuke of the West, um, to people who really are in a state of, of utter despair and have nowhere, nowhere else to consider going. So it builds itself around, this is a poem written whilst I was, Maka of Dundee. Uh, so it builds itself around the, the, the nine trades, which were the guilds of, of medieval Dundee. Uh, so each verse is one of these trades. And it, it uh, describes a welcome of sorts to people who may or may not still be uh, alive. And uh, I should just say there's, there's one thing which is uh, worth noting here as, is that you discover these things when you're writing. Uh, you know, that, that uh, muslin comes from Mosul. I didn't, didn't know this. Gauze comes from Gaza. These, these really simple and obvious things about names, which contain so much meaning, is just one of those things that you, you hope to and, and sometimes happen to discover uh, in the act of, of, of writing. It's got a, a little bit at the start, which is from the Locket book. The Locket book was the, was the books that they literally could padlock shut, uh, which had all of the information of the trades in them, the, the registers of the trades. So this was from the Locket book of the Dundee Weavers. 1770s. Our stays here and days here are very short and brittle. They shorter, go swifter than does a weaver's shuttle. And someone has just scribbled this in the margins. The nine trades welcome you to the city of refuge. The Baxter will bake you a bridey, my bride, my Mary of all the monsters that dream to bind the flesh of the bridegroom fast, all mingled with fragments of shot between. Then the cardinal will cut out two souls, my son, and so shoe since your pilgrimage is done. Such a shame you should walk to our city unshod, where the Turk was paraded in King Crispin's shade. And the Skinner gear glove for the hand that you lost to cutlass or crime or the snow on the hill. So you'll think of its scuttle like a soft-backed crab, a shuttle between all the threads in our mill. The tailor will stitch up the cloth you'll be clad in, since eternity also has sumptuary laws, and his statutes still tell us, nay women shall wear, nay dresses aboon their estate, except whores. Then the bonnet maker caps you with a turi, my boy, all black with the Indies' best indigo too, for it's up with the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee, since all who pay their fees shall be free. And the flesher shall strike you a calf with his axe on commercial street, so it falls to its knees, blinded by blood where the shambles once stood, for you are all brawlads, if dusty of foot. Let the hammer men cunningly craft you a gun of the fishtail design or the old lemon butt and fashion you both the hauberk bold and the bullet that shall pierce it. Then the webster will weave you a shroud safe fine 
as muslin from muzzle or Gaza's old gauze, the cutty sack shall be your sign that your bairns have been swaddled in some future's cause. And the dyer will print out your ends and your means, inking his press with gall of the oak, listing your numbers, if rarely your names, and sealing the news in his locket book. And that's it for episode six, an episode too packed for me to linger over goodbyes. I hope you enjoyed listening. And remember to visit poetryworthhearing.biz for texts, more information and details of how to submit. <laughs>